Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for a morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In the book of Genesis, the sons of Cain seek divine status and an artificial life forged in everlasting stone. In Matthew, Jesus, like the sons of Adam in Genesis chapter 5, is humanized and weakened on the cross. The line of Cain ends in the abomination of human kingship. In the crucifixion, Jesus is humiliated in front of everyone to make it clear that no human being may sit on his Father's throne. At that moment, God looked upon the suffering servant, his anointed, and proclaimed, Son of Adam, say to the house of Israel, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 to 53. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 419 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we talked about the death of Jesus on the cross and his obedience to the teaching of Genesis. In chapter 6 of Genesis, the sin that is committed by human beings is, in fact, divinization, that they had become sons of God, that they had become divine superheroes, like the apotheosis of George Washington on the ceiling of the Capitol Rotunda. It's the same old, same old. Nothing changes under the sun. Everybody wants an eternal shrine with their picture on it. Everybody wants to proclaim Jesus Son of God, but Matthew keeps insisting in obedience to the will of the teaching of God the Father in Genesis that Jesus is the Ben-Adam, the Son of Man. He is not a superhero endowed with super strength or super characteristics. He is a son of Adam, and he yields up his spirit, which is different terminology than what is used in the Gospel of Mark, where he breathes his last. Here in Matthew, he yields up his spirit, which has something to do with the function of the spirit here in the next few verses, which tie to Ezekiel, and he goes back to the ground. Again, in obedience to to God's commandment in Genesis, 
Remember that the Toledot of Adam in chapter 5 of Genesis is undoing the damage of the Toledot of Cain. It is humanizing the children of Adam, not Ha-Adam, just Adam in chapter 5. It is humanizing the children of Adam, making them the exact opposite of what we make out of George Washington on the ceiling of the Capitol Rotunda, the apotheosis of George Washington. I'm going to keep repeating it, Richard, until it sinks in somewhere. Someone's going to hear what we're saying at some point. Jesus is obeying the teaching of Genesis chapter 5 and the Toledot of Adam. He is humanized in his execution, fully humanized, and he returns to the Adama. And now we are going to see the spirit of his father, the spirit of Elohim, do its work. We are going to see now all of the work that Jesus has done in obedience to the will of his father for the sake of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His war against the children of Cain and the city builders that began in chapter 4 when Satan brought him to the pinnacle of the temple. We're going to see now with the destruction of the temple what the Spirit is going to do for the sake of God's people, Israel in the story. Yeah, this apotheosis of human leaders, I mean, it's very clear that this is something we want to turn our people into superheroes. That is absolutely something we want to do. They're either superheroes or supervillains, you know, they have to be super something. I mean, the movie, The Passion of the Christ, I heard recently a critique of that movie, the Mel Gibson movie, saying how the Romans and the soldiers were pure evil in the movie, which is not fair. They're guys doing their job. Christ is crucified because everyone's just doing their job. The priests are trying to keep the priesthood going and the temple going, and the judge of the region, the governor, doesn't want to listen to his wife. He just wants to keep things moving along and disperse the crowds, and the soldiers just get a new garment. I mean, that's nice. You know, they get a new garment out of it. It's cool. And then we have these people who want to give Jesus a drink, So that he'll stay around a little bit, because maybe if he stays around a little bit longer, then Elias will come, and that'd be really cool to see. Okay, these are people acting distressingly human. That's the problem, is they're distressingly human. We want to make them evil or super good. That's how we always think, and it's frustrating. The critique I heard of Mel Gibson's movie is this satanic character that's kind of floating around in the background in the movie. He's like, read the Gospels. There's no devil in the background. We have a devil in chapter 4 of Matthew, but there's no devil in chapter 27 of Matthew. We have the banality of evil. It's just plain old evil. It's just the stuff that happens all the time. You know, we could have written a whole story about what happened to two of the thieves. Did they actually steal something? I don't know with this crowd. Don't really trust them a lot. Or did they do something that crossed the priests? I don't know. This is the true banality of evil. A couple weeks ago on the show, we talked about how it's so commonplace to want to depict Jesus as a hero. Whether the hero is a super nice guy playing soccer with the kids or a Byzantine emperor 
or a super holy guy with the light shining on his face with blue eyes and blonde hair as he prays to his God in a very pious, uplifted face. These are the ways we like to depict Jesus in the perfection of us. As though by being perfected in a fleshly sense through hard work and virtue, you can become divine, which is anti-scriptural. That's the vision of the children of Cain who beget their children in stone, which is exactly the game Satan is playing when he takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple made by the hand of man, a fake womb that can't give birth. Only a real flesh and blood woman can give birth to a child. This is the point that's being made in Genesis. And guess what? Repeatedly, the patriarchs are unsuccessful at fathering children, so God has to intervene with a fleshly womb, not with a tomb of stone. Yes, Father. The other side of the image we were talking about a couple weeks ago is how rare it is to depict a human being going through the tribulations that Jesus is going through. How often do you see George Washington depicted as Jesus? You might have someone you pity in a movie or something like that who becomes a, quote, Christ figure in a movie because they suffer. They're a suffering innocent, right? But Jesus is not a suffering innocent. He is not innocent in that it's just happening to him and it's just being carried along by the waves of history. No, he had a choice. And he went along with it as an obedient son of God. And how often do we depict our leaders as going through this kind of humiliation? Even if we depict our leaders as losing, they go down in a glorious, honorable blaze of glory. They're not humiliated. They're not stripped naked. They're not made fun of. They're not poked and prodded. It doesn't happen to our leaders. We will not paint a picture of George Washington crucified, picked on, and poked at. We can't. I have to listen to people talking about why is it that people just want to say negative things about our country. You know, our country, yes, it has its problems, but people want to say negative things. Why is that? I mean, I don't know. The drone program? I mean, yeah. Like, I think that's a problem. I think that there are so many things that we build, like you said, Father, out of stone so that it gives birth, but in fact it kills. You know, they always show the beautiful picture of the Pentagon. If you get on the wrong side of the Pentagon, you're literally obliterated, annihilated. Life is taken from you if you get on the wrong side of the Pentagon. This is not a symbol of beauty. This is not an architectural wonder. This is the center of destruction, the center of violence. This is what human beings create. God offers an option where we can have hope in something that is not made of human hands. And that begins with his will through his word. You listen to his word and you do it, and that's what gives you hope. But God has to smash everything else because people get distracted by the stupidity. They get distracted by the stupidity on Facebook. They get distracted by the stupidity of wars forged against other nations. They get distracted by the stupidity, which they think is intelligence when it comes out of their own brain. 
But they forget that, like, no, you can't be a Republican or a Democrat and a Christian at the same time. Otherwise, you're a tool. You're a tool. Jesus is the only person in here who is not a tool. He's not being used by anybody except his father. So maybe I need to amend that. Jesus is a tool, but only exclusively his father's tool. And behold, this is after the yielding up of the Spirit. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Now this fragment, of course, is also in the Markan account. What's important here with the veil is that the partition separating the ark from the book of Samuel, containing the law of Moses, is now removed. Because Jesus, through his submission to the will of his Father, through his obedience to that law, submitting unto death, has now made it possible for the kingdom of his Father to gain ascendancy not only over Israel, but over all the nations. This is how Ezekiel is made functional here. The Son of Man is now, through his obedience, shown to be the Messiah, the suffering Son of Man, upon whom rests the Spirit of the Lord. And this Spirit is going to rescue Israel and restore the kingdom and gather all the nations under the authority of the law contained in the ark, which is the gospel to the nations. Remember, you think of the gospel always because you're all programmed by theology, every last one of you. You all think that there's a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's exhausting to keep having this argument with everybody. The New Testament carries the Ark of the Covenant to the nations, but we're still talking about the same Ark with the same law. David and Solomon wanted to build a building so they could put a tent inside it. <laughs> uh, this is the absurdity of the temple, is that the temple was supposed to encase a tent in it, which, of course, a tent is created so that it can move around. So by putting it in a temple, you've completely defeated the tent's purpose. It's a portable tabernacle. That is the entire point of having it. But this is what the human beings decided they wanted to do. They wanted to put it in a stone building. Okay, whatever. And here we have the veil of the temple. And, you know, in Hebrews, it talks about the veil being torn, you know, that division. But the division is... People think there's some kind of like ontological division, which was then overcome by this or whatever. There's not an ontological division. Go and read Hosea. The division is between people who listen and people who don't listen. The division is whatever is stopping up your ears from hearing. That's the division. Between those who have access and who don't have access, Rich. And what's stopping up people is the hubris of those who didn't deserve access, but because of God's generosity received access. And by didn't deserve, I don't mean that there's anyone who deserves access, which is the whole point of the whole story. It's that God shows grace upon whom he wants to show grace. And he was feeling especially gracious when Jesus was executed. 
Now, how you make out of that ascesis and becoming divine, I will never figure out when Jesus went back to the Adama so that you could read his book. It's really something. And then no one reads the book and everybody wants to become divine. It's a big joke. And when I read the next part of the verse, the earth quaked and the rocks rent. I mean, this is what we call a theophany, meaning at the beginning of some of the prophetic books, like at the beginning of Joel, whatever, you know, he asks for the heavens and the earth to testify. He talks about the roar of the Lord's voice coming, and it's interesting because the sound and the thunder, when it comes to the Lord, you can't tell the difference which one it is. This is testifying that the Lord will speak. Like, the problem is a lot of times theologians will say the theophany means the Lord is present. Yes, the Lord is present, but in a very specific way, meaning his word is present. He is spoken. And don't forget, we've been talking all throughout this chapter that no matter what, Jesus will not stop teaching. And at the very end, there's the seal that this has been a prophecy of the Lord. This is what the Lord has said. The Lord is putting his seal on this teaching that Jesus has provided. We have the tearing of the temple so that the word can go out, and then we have this seal put on it, testified by the very earth itself that this is the word of the Lord. The human being who witnesses this must pay attention. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Here, reference Ezekiel chapter 37, and I'm going to read a short excerpt that many of you will be immediately familiar with at the end of the famous dry bones reading from Pascha. Then he said to me, Ben Adam, son of man. How many times have we heard Jesus referred to as son of man in the Gospel of Matthew? Not son of God which is a pejorative term in Genesis. But here in Ezekiel and in Matthew, son of man, the humanized Adam in chapter 5, Ben Adam, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, as you were just saying a moment ago, Richard. It's a revelation through his words. And done it, declares the Lord. And then, importantly, at the end of the chapter, and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. He is reuniting the northern and southern kingdom. He is rescuing his people. And all of the nations, through the pouring out of his spirit, come to know that he is the Lord who sanctifies Israel. That is what Matthew is referring to here in the resurrection of the saints who had fallen asleep. In Ezekiel, the 
people are without hope and they're dead and God is creating even a remnant to bring into the land. Coming into the land, though, is not enough because once they're there, they don't defile themselves anymore with their idols. This is Ezekiel 23. Nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned and will cleanse them, so shall they be my people and I will be their God. He brings them into the land so that they can obey his word so that they can remain faithful to his word. That is the point. It isn't so they can go and do whatever they want. It's like, oh, you're alive. Go be free. There is no be free in the Bible. You can't claim your right to do anything if you're going to be a Christian. I mean, Jefferson and the Bible are not compatible. So the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. Those were the saints. Those are aios, aion, were the ones who were arising and who are coming into the land. God allows them hope by giving them life, but the hope is that they can then follow the word, they can be obedient, and live in this land of milk and honey, and stay in the land of milk and honey simply by obeying. It's another chance. The reason why Ezekiel was a problem is because the people had been disobedient, they were kicked out of the land, and the land was destroyed. So they were brought back in so that they could have hope so they could give it another shot. That's the hope. You get another shot. Or at least not you individually, but you collectively. You don't get another shot. You're in the grave. But there's a few that were brought out of the grave that were given another shot. Were they sanctified because they're such good people or they did this or they're Saint so-and-so or Saint so-and-so? No. It's because they've got a shot at being obedient. That's it. Jesus was obedient. He's one of the Aios because he was obedient. He was holy because the word formed his actions. This is the hope of Ezekiel. And this is the hope with us that we could hear this and we can have one more shot. Because anyone who hears Matthew 27 and doesn't realize they blew their last shot, it's not been listening. And you go back and re-listen because you blew it. Listener, you blew it. Nevertheless, God is giving you another shot. Because you're listening to this and he's telling you like, you really blew it. You need to try again. I mean, it's just like, you know, I'm doing something mean to my wife. And then she tells me, she's like, you cannot do that ever again. What am I going to do? Argue with her? A lot of husbands would just argue. Oh, I, well, I didn't mean anything by it. No, it was okay. Da, 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 until she divorces him. And then she's like, wait a second. There's no wait a second. She says, you messed up. And if I realize this is the keros, of saying, I apologize, I'll never do that again. Then she'll look at me with one eye closed with the other eye very carefully and say, all right, I'll give you another shot. She doesn't trust me that I'm going to do it right this time. That's grace. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. We've already mentioned on today's program that Satan brought Jesus where? into the holy city, to the pinnacle of the temple. We mentioned it because that's the only other time in Matthew that we hear about the holy city. So there's the offer that Satan made, trying to tempt Jesus to jump off so that the angels would rescue him. And then there's this scene here after the crucifixion. After the complete humiliation 
and defeat of Jesus through his submission and total subjection to his Father's will. So in the first example in chapter 4, Jesus was standing at the top of the temple of stone built by the hand of man, the ultimate expression of the achievement of the sons of Cain, the temple of stone in Jerusalem. That's what the devil had to offer. <laughs> Let me take you to the top of the top of the top of the latest rendition of the Tower of Babel. And Jesus said, not interested in the temple, let alone jumping off of it to irritate my dad. Not interested in what you're selling, Mr. Devil. And now here in chapter 27, after doing what he was asked to do, what he was sent to do by his father, Jesus completely crushed Aben-Adam, pushed down into the Adama through crucifixion. Now, it's no longer realized eschatology because he is now truly on the other side of the cross. Now he can enter the holy city. Now we can talk about the resurrection in the Gospel of Matthew because now there's no way for it to become Hitler's victory or Caesar's victory or the Americans' victory or the Russians' victory. It's not that kind of victory. There's no way that it can be the kind of victory the temple builders crave. There's no way it can be the victory that everyone shouting for the victory of Barabbas was hoping for. The people who just a few minutes ago were saying, maybe Elijah will come for him. It's not that victory either. It's something else. Because he lost. Now we can talk about the opening of the tombs. This callback to the holy city is fascinating. And what you're saying, Father, this is where the devil can try to impress Jesus, putting him up at the top of the highest building in the holy city to impress him. And it takes the devil to go and put him on top of there. Now you just have these dead, sleeping holy ones just enter into the holy city. They begin to listen, and they enter, and there is no protection that Rome can put up against them. Those who hear and those who are obedient have all the power that God can provide for them. Now, power, don't get me wrong, I know what's going to happen. I say power, and now everybody thinks that all these guys are now Caesars, just like Jesus is a Caesar, and they all have armor and helmets and swords and all that. No, that's not what I'm saying. When they have power, it's the power that Jesus has, which is the power to remain obedient. That's what I said about Ezekiel 37, like you were saying, Father. So this is the devil in Matthew 4, which is, come to the Oval Office, sit down in the chair, enjoy the chair in the Oval Office here. It's nice here in the Oval Office, isn't it? And Jesus is like, yeah, I don't think this is for me. I think this is not the office of my Father, and I think I prefer to do something else. I'm going to go out into the wilderness with the shepherds. That's better for me than trying to be in this Oval Office of yours, O oh, Satan. But now we have these dead people just wandering into the Oval Office. 
It's not the devil who says, hey, do you want to come into the office? No, the veil has been rent and they enter into the city. The ark, now the word is going out to Israel and to all the nations. And here we have those who were sleeping, the holy ones, entering into the city. And this reminds me also, we have it a couple places in the prophets, come let us go to the house of the Lord. These are the nations coming in to the holy city. And here we have those who are sleeping. So it is the teaching that enlivens them. It is not being a son of Abraham. It's not because they're a son of Abraham. It is not because of a lineage. It is not because they have a good track record. They have a good checklist that's full of all their good deeds. It's not because whenever they play golf, they track every stroke, even when someone's not watching. That's not what it's about. They're obedient to the Lord and the Lord's teaching. So I've had enough conversations this week about people wanting to have their rights about you know vaccines and about masks and all this stuff, and it's just such malarkey. I want to be done with that. I want people to read this one more time, but I wish they would just read this and just spend their time reading this. Enough of social media. It used to be enough for a Christian to own a copy of the Bible and no other book. That used to be enough. And some didn't even know how to read, and they would go to church to listen to Scripture being read. Read, please, listeners, read, and understand that it is through obedience to that word that you read, this is where your hope can come. This is where you're given the next chance. This is why the veil was rent, so you get one more chance to hear this word and be obedient to it. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.